today uh, we're going to continue uh, going through uh, systematic theology, of course, and we are still on the doctrine of man. And I wanted to I wanted to talk about a few um, uh, let's see here a few uh, points of doctrine dealing with the doctrine of man, and that is the that is the the theology of dichotomy versus um, trichotomy. And if we have some time, we'll get into um, creationism. Let me just write that up there right now. Creationism, right? And what's known as traditionism. Okay, that's why I got to write it down. Okay. Um, but first, before I define creationism, traditionism, uh, let's talk about dichotomy and trichotomy. So the question that we're asking right now is, what is man? That's the biggest question, right? Um, it could be very simply answered as saying, well, what do you mean, what is man? Man is a creation of God. Man is a creature. Uh, man is a human being. Man is... Um, you know, man is a living being. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can define what is man. But let me just give you an example of this. You know, this week on uh, Red Grace uh, Media, I did a I did a podcast on uh, Vicky Beeching. You guys know about Vicky Beeching, who she is. She's a very famous worship leader, especially in the UK. But she's also famous here in the United States. She's done worship with all you know, very very famous worship leaders in the contemporary worship scene. Okay, well, this week, earlier this week, she came out as a lesbian. She says that she is homosexual, she is Christian, and that God has accepted her as a gay Christian. So the whole, you know, quote-unquote gay Christian movement, which, is, which really was sparked by Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian. And it was backed up by Danny Cortez, the pastor out of La Mirada, who publicly put out a statement uh, and, and gave a defense for why he switched his position. I mean, this is a Southern Baptist, you know, he used to be Calvary Chapel, turned Southern Baptist, comes out in front of his church on a Sunday morning and argues for why he's not only switching his position, but why he's why he believes that he can defend the position from scripture. And of course, there was hardly any scripture involved in that, that statement, which I called it a statement of apostasy, ultimately, because it's a complete denial of the gospel. It's a complete antinomian gospel at that point. So Vicki Beeching is just another, the latest victim in a long line. But, you know, I listened to this TV interview with Vicki Beeching and, and, and um, she, where she interacted with a pastor by the name of Scott Lively. And it was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a debate. I mean, 10 minutes or so of time, that's all they gave her. But, you know, she began quoting psychology. She began quoting philosophy. She started talking about science. And Scott Lightley did such a great job of pointing out, look, what about the Bible? <laughs> you know, uh, what about that? You know, what does God think about your homosexuality? Have you even considered that? And she says, well, it's, you know, going to psychology and going to science is part of being human. And I thought, you know, Vicki, you don't even know what it means to be human unless you go to the Bible. Unless you go to the Word of God, you have no real transcendent, eternal, infinite definition of what it means to be a human being. 
Because man is, or science is not going to tell you what human being is. I mean, which science? Evolutionary theory? Uh, psychology? Well, psychology, a lot of it's based on philosophy, like Platonic philosophy, which denies a lot of the basic essential tenets of Scripture's teaching on what is a man? What is a human? Um, what is a human comprised of? So this question is very big. It's a big question. What is a human, and when does human life begin? Now, what do you think that affects when human life begins? Yeah, the whole controversy of abortion, right? Euthanasia. What is, what is a human person? Okay. When do we have a right to uh, basically take matters into our own hands, you know, as far as euthanasia is concerned? So there's, there's all these relevant points, okay? But I want to come back now to the views. So very quickly then, uh, dichotomy is the theology, the teaching that says that man is essentially comprised of two parts. He is body, right, and soul. Under dichotomy, this is the dichotomy position, right? Under dichotomy, the soul is synonymous with spirit and heart. In other words, under the dichotomy position, these terms are interchangeable, as we're going to see. The trichotomist, you guys like how I'm doing this this time. The trichotomist says, no, man is comprised of three parts. He is body, he is soul, and he is spirit. So three parts. So he's, he's body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, soul and spirit are different. Soul and spirit are different. Now, historically... Throughout the history of the church, the difference between soul and spirit um, has amounted to arguing that a person's spirit, let's say, is more pure, uh, less affected by the fall than the soul. Don't ask me how they determine that. It sounds arbitrary. It's because it is. Okay, so... Um, I am a trichotomist, or dichotomist, excuse me. I believe that John is wiping his head over there. You know, I mean, it does matter. I mean, this is a significant, you know, idea because don't you want to know what am I? I mean, I want to know what am I? Am I body, soul, and spirit? Where is my soul in relationship to my spirit? If I'm three parts. Yes, sir. How biblically would someone would a Christian differentiate scripturally in trichotomy what the difference is between soul and spirit? How biblically? Well, that's what we're going to oh, look at. No, no, that's good. Now, how the, you know, there has been some throughout the history of the church that believe in trichotomy, going all the way back to the time of origin. It has been held. It's kind of a minimal view. And then there's a third view. I, I should throw this out. The third view is known as uh, monism. Just like that. Monism. Monism is the idea that man is only body, no soul. And that the term soul or, um, or uh, let's see here, or heart, okay, or spirit, that these terms are just speaking about life or what they would call the life principle. That this is just referring to the experience of life. And that's what the soul of a person is really all about. That's it. 
Um, that is a very minimalistic view because it cannot, it has really zero uh, biblical, um, you know, it, uh, evidence to sustain it. And it, that's really, really rooted in um, a Greek philosophy and things like that. So let's focus on the two big ones, the two big ones, because there are some statements, right? I mean, there are some statements in Scripture where um, it, it would seem as if the Bible is teaching that man has body, soul, and spirit. So turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Okay. And uh, you probably know where I'm going here. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 4. Let's see here. Okay, verse 12. Somebody want to read that for us? For the word of God is living and right. sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's right. So, the exact word is soul and spirit, right? So, there is a Greek word here, chi. Right? It's soul and spirit. And the division is not, however, a different preposition. Uh, if, if he wanted to divide, let's say, the soul from the spirit, okay? So that basically these are, what I'm saying is that this chi is joining these things and saying this is one idea, one thought. Soul and spirit, same thing. Just like if somebody were to say, like, your heart and emotions, same thing. Are you going to divide the heart from the emotions? Um, you're thinking from your reason. You see what I'm saying? You're speaking about the same thing in different ways, synonymous. And this really goes back to um, a way of writing which is really rooted in Old Testament, which is called Hebrew parallelism, which you use synonymous terms to speak of the same thing. Uh, you, we're going to see this throughout our exposition of Hebrews. But if it would have wanted to make it specific that the soul and the spirit could be divided, we're talking about a preposition, okay, that would be something like soul from spirit. The soul from the spirit. So it'd be something like a paw or something like that, okay? Totally different. So the, the, the authors of scripture did not use that type of reason. Also, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. 1 Thess chapter 5, verse 23. It says, May God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and uh, may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord. Does it, um, and, and of course the, 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 re, the rebuttal to this is that it does seem as if here, once again, he is talking about these various Parts, these various components. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. First, yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Okay. Uh, but just because it lists synonymous terms, that doesn't mean you're talking about different parts all the time. Or else, if that were, you know, if that were the way that we are defining what a man is, well, then you come, you use that same hermeneutic and apply it to other parts of Scripture. Let's say, for example, uh, Mark chapter 12, 
verse 30. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, number one, with all of your soul, number two, with all of your mind, number three, with all of your strength, number four. So now we have four aspects of man introduced. How many are there? So these kinds of principles, um, and then if you tack on the other synonyms that are used elsewhere, some theologians like Grudem and Burkhoff, they've summarized that if you take all of the different parts into play, man is comprised of six or seven parts. So that can't possibly be what scripture is teaching. That would kind of be uh, ludicrous at that point. So, yes, sir. Sorry, keep it. No, nope, you're fine. Back on chapter 5, verse 23 of Thessalonians, yep. how do you differentiate and translate man between spirit and soul and soul and body? How do you translate? I mean, how do you, when you're translating, you're saying that the and here with spirit and soul would be synonymous, but then you have and body, which is separated out. So how would you, like, if you're going through that verse, and you say, okay, spirit and soul are synonymous, and I'm assuming that's Kai right there that's joining them. Right. But then you have and body. So how right. do you know to separate the body out and know that the other two are not separated out and synonymous? Well, I guess you would just have to determine that from the way it's used elsewhere. Okay. You know what I mean? And see that there's a consistent way to use that. So obviously you go from a material concept to, an to a, a material to an immaterial, right? So two immaterial things are being talked about synonymously. The body cannot be equated with something sure. immaterial. So it's obviously something material. Something new has been introduced. So I think you just have to take the whole thing into play. Um, so a trichotomist would basically try and read into scripture yeah. here instead of taking the whole of scripture and translating it scripture yeah. to scripture, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, but let's look at some of the stronger arguments for dichotomy. Okay, for dichotomy. Number one is the idea that the the terms soul and spirit, like I said, the terms soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Um, soul, spirit, heart, these terms are used in Scripture seemingly in an interchangeable fashion. For example, if you look to John chapter 12, 12 and 13, so John chapter 12, there we, we have um, very explicitly Jesus saying that his soul is troubled. This is John 12, 27. John 12, 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. Now, if you skip over to John chapter 13, verse 31, or excuse me, verse 21, John 13, 21, then Jesus turns around and says, my spirit is troubled. And so are we to believe that there's a difference between his soul being troubled and his spirit being troubled? I would say, no, you don't. No, we're not. Um, maybe, maybe a synonymous usage in the same verse. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, or swipe over to Luke chapter 1, whatever format you're on. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 46, this is part of Mary's Magnificat, her exaltation of worship. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. I mean, it would be very difficult for us to determine in worship, let's say we're Mary, right? She's in a posture of worship. When is she worshiping God with her spirit? Okay, stop. Let's time it. Now worship God with your soul. 
<laughs> you know, how would you differentiate between the two? It would be impossible because it is impossible because it's obviously not uh, biblical. It's not biblical. And um, so you have, um, you have all of these different things being spoken of here. Also, there is, there is this relationship of the soul and the body, which seems uh, that we're talking about two things. For example, going back to monism, going back to the idea that man is one thing, body, and that life or soul just simply speaks of the life principle. Um, but the problem with that is that scripture everywhere seems to affirm not only that the body can exist apart from the soul, but that when the body is departed, you know, the body can depart into two parts, if you would, or the, the person can be divided into two, his body and his spirit. And that's why the Bible can speak of, for example, in Genesis 35, it talks about the soul departing from a man. In Psalm 31, verse 5, it talks about the soul being entrusted to God. It's not the soul's entrusted, the heart is entrusted, the, the spirit is entrusted. No, it's just two things, right? Um, also, in Luke 23, verse 43, there it speaks about the soul's awareness. And so that the human person continues with the soul, with the soul. That you are aware and that you are experiencing, in the context here, paradise. You'll be with me in paradise, right? Uh, when we depart from our body temporarily, that intermediate state, we will be aware that we are there. Just really amazing, isn't it? Does it kind of wig you out a little bit? That one day you will be separate from your body? It ought to. It ought to. Because contrary to what the world tells you, oh, death is just part of life, honey. Settle down. No, it's not. Death is not part of life. Death is a curse. Death is the enemy of life. It's not just part of life. Accept it. It's, it's just the way it is. No, no, no. There's a whole theology of death. Theology is, you know, that death is a fearful, dreadful, cursed thing. Now, thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death so that we can say, oh, grave, where's your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Right? Death's been swallowed up in triumph. So thank God. Thank God that he has given us the victory over death, even the fear of death. That's actually in um, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. I think it's verse 14 where uh, Jesus defeats the devil who has the power of death. <gasps> Isn't that amazing? The devil has the power of death. What does that mean? Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll get there soon enough. So all of these different... Um, passages that speak of these two things, right? Um, going all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord forms the man out of the dust and then breathes the breath of life into him. And then, and only then, does he become a living being. The, the, does he become what it means to be human, right? See, first, um, second... Corinthians, I think it's, somebody correct me on this, chapter 5, I think, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, we do not seek to be unclothed. What's he talking about there? Mm -hmm. He's saying we do not seek to be disembodied. We don't seek to be without the body. Um, 
In a first century context, why is that important? He talks about that. We don't seek to be without the body. We want to be clothed with a body, no question. But something has to happen because this body is what? Mortal, perishing, it's decaying. So why is it important in a first century context to talk about we don't want to be without our body? Anyone? Anyone? What heresies? Anyone can shout heresy. <laughs> huh? Maybe with the different uh, uh, false religions out there, how that, uh, you know, that pantheon of gods, and it just seems so... Getting close, Gigi. Huh? Yeah, okay. Much, uh, so paganism. Yeah, very, very pagan. Right? Gigi talked about... What now? What, what was that? Docetism. 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 That'd be more accurate because the Greek word is kappa, pronounced as a K. Doketo or doketo, right? To seem. So docetism is the theology that Jesus seemed, seemed to be there physically, but he was not. Jesus was like a phantasm. He was like a spirit being walking around as if he had flesh and blood, but did not actually have flesh and blood. And that's why John, 1 John chapter 1, he says, who we have touched with our hands, right? Yeah. So docetism, and then what's a close heresy related to docetism, John? I'm say Gnosticism. I'll put you on the spot, you did good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, Gnosticism, this is the one that's important because this is pure... Plato, Platonic thought, and Platonic thought taught that it was a bad existence to be with the body. That your body is evil. That's where Docetism came from. Well, we have accepted Platonism. Platonism teaches us that the ideal existence is to be apart from the sinful body. Therefore, it's not possible that Christ could have been you know, in a sinful body, because body is just so mundane and so raw and crude, and why would Christ have a body? You see, it's useless to us. Uh, so Gnosticism said that the ideal condition would be to return, if you would, because we are kind of like a spark off of the old flame, right? And here we are, and when we die, what Plato thought is that we return to this realm of ideas, of reason, of logos, of pure thought. That's, that's where we were going back to, the realm of pure reason, okay, as spirit, without the body. So we've kind of, we've ascended, right? But this is, none of this is all garbage. This is just not what the Bible teaches, right? Let's just do away with all of it, away with your false philosophy, right? The Bible teaches no. You know, we don't seek to be disembodied far from that. Paul says in 2nd, keep talking about it, I might as well go there. 2nd Corinthians, I think it is, uh, chapter 5. Is it chapter 5? Yes. Verse 4. Indeed, 2nd Cor 5 4. Indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened. None of us can argue with that. But. He says, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this purpose is God, 
who gave us his spirit as a pledge. So the spirit of God in our hearts is the pledge that one day we will have the type of body that, will, that is capable of swallowing up mortality, a body that will never die again. Doesn't that sound nice? Our problem is that we want that body right now in this world. <laughs> but, you know, Jesus said you've got to hate your life in this world, right? In this world, we have no abiding city, right? So, okay, let's keep going. Uh, maybe just a couple more arguments for dichotomy. Again, at death, the soul departs. Um, let's see. Also, the soul can sin or the spirit can sin. This is why, for example, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Apostle Paul there giving instructions to those who are unmarried and says, <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians 7.34, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. And in spirit. So there we go. You have this reference to being holy in body. Also, the same principle applies to the soul. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. So sanctification affects soul and spirit equally. Okay, There is no this two level, the spirit is more holy than the soul. The soul is what kind of gets defiled. The spirit remains pure. No, it doesn't. No, they're synonymous terms. This is what it means. The heart. We are also to sanctify our hearts. I mean, there's just so many, um, so many different uh, texts on this. Okay. Um, let's see here. Why don't we talk about uh, the next... <clears throat> Let's talk about the next point that I brought up, okay? Any questions regarding any of that? I know it's a lot, but um, I think it's still important. Uh, maybe ask a more fundamental question. I mean, we're talking about the immaterial aspect of man, the immaterial aspect of man. Maybe a more fundamental question is to ask, where does the soul come from? Where does the soul come from? Have you ever thought about that? Gigi's smiling at me like, are we getting ready to disagree? No. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see, right? No. I mean, I know. Um, there's only, there's these two views, creationism, traditionism, and, no, there's actually a third view. Does anybody know what it is off the top of your, your heads? Huh? Um, there's a third uh, position on this, and that is called pre Existionism. Woo, I spelled it right. Pre, pre, no, I didn't. That's what I get for boasting. Pre existionism. Which means the soul already existed prior to the person being created. Okay, yes, sir. Would that lead to, in essence, uh, your soul is eternal from eternity past? Sure. Yeah, or, 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 or maybe it's not eternal, but at some point in time, and I think that what they would argue is that at the creation, 
at creation, God created all the souls that would ever live. So the, the difference here, what preexistentism is talking about, is that God has like a He has like a storehouse, if you would, He has a jar full of souls. You know, He has a store a storehouse of souls. And when male and female, how do I do a female? Okay, there's her hair. Okay. okay. When they come together, God grabs one of his pre-created souls and imparts it at the point of conception. <laughs> this is a view. I mean, this is, this is held by some people throughout church history. But the main, uh, the main two views is creationism and transducianism, or uh, traducianism, excuse me. So creationism is saying that uh, God creates the soul at conception. So here, the soul is a byproduct of God's creation. Oh no, I'm, 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 losing, my, I'm losing my bearings over here. This is what I get when the guys don't set this up. Okay, well, I, think, I think I typed it. Okay. So here, God creates the soul, okay? So the soul is a byproduct of God's creation. Whereas with traducianism, the soul is the byproduct of uh, reproduction. When male and female come together, they, in the procreative process, the reproductive process, I mean, the soul is created. Uh, this has been a hotly debated um, issue for very long. L Some of my favorite theologians are on opposite sides here. Okay? For example, you know how much I love Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. Well, Jonathan Edwards was uh, on this side. Edwards was a traditionist. So was uh, Luther. And Lutheranism following Luther generally was um, traditionist. Yes, sir. So would they say that Edwards and Luther in that position basically that God didn't play a role in the creation of the soul? They were they just... talking about semantics here about as far as... Timing. I'm trying to, I don't know. Yeah, so. He's got his part of reproduction too, so I'm having a hard time differentiating those two views right there. We are talking about how something comes into existence. Mm -hmm. And so the argument that Jonathan Edwards and Luther and, and the others, uh, also G.T. Shedd and A.H. Strong, uh, believe this, what they're trying to protect, because these men aren't stupid, they're trying to protect the concept that God is still creating. Because on the seventh day, he rested from all of his works. So how is it possible for God to be continually creating ex nihilo souls? You see that? So there's, there's a bit of weight there. Um, the creationist position, creationism position, was held by quite possibly my favorite theologian of all, John Calvin. 
John Calvin argue with Luther and he said no. No. Uh, the soul is created directly by God. And he gave all sorts of proofs and all sorts of arguments uh, to, to substantiate that claim. So maybe we can turn to, to, to think about at least some of these. Um, let me see if I can find it here. See if I can find it here. Um, you know, because one, one of the arguments for the traditionist position is based out of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10, it says there that Levi was in the loins of his father. Wow. Almost giving the idea that it's stored there somehow, somehow. Right? Um, I am a creationist, by the way. I believe in creationism. I'm not a traditionist. But I think the arguments for creationism are a bit stronger. Um, Zechariah chapter 12 seems to very explicitly say that God is the one who forms the spirit within man. God is the one that does it. Where does the, where does the spirit come from? Where does the soul come from? From God who creates it in man. He is the one directly creating that in man. Um, you know, um, also we know Psalm 139, verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13 tells us that David understood that God is the one who knit him together in his mother's womb. And so the total human person was knit together by God. By God. <clears throat> Also in Psalm 127, it seems as if the Lord is the one who rewards the womb with a baby, with a person. He is the direct agent through which the soul of that baby comes. No soul, uh, and all you have is a body, you don't have a human person. You have to have a soul with the body in order to be human. So God is the one who imparts that. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 likewise says that God is the father of spirits. That's a powerful one because calling God the father of something means that he has, essentially, he, he, he is being credited with it, right? He is the, they, they, they derive from him. Spirits derive from God. He creates the spirits of man. Hebrews 12, what, I'm sorry. Hebrews 12, uh, 9. Hebrews 12.9. Um, yes, sir? Just out of curiosity, other than Grudem's talking about this, where's a good resource to go? Because I'm like, Burkoff. Scott, I've, I've been a little confused about this issue. Burkoff. Yeah, Burkoff. Yeah, Burkoff, that's where Grudem got all his information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess my, my struggle is, is that, yes, sir. What, are they saying that God doesn't play a role? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, of course God plays a role, but what they're concerned about is that God is now using secondary causes to accomplish the creation of a soul so that he doesn't, he's not really the direct agent, right? Or else he would perpetually be creating. That's, that's again, that's what they're trying to protect against, okay? Whereas Calvin is saying, no, there's a way in which God is still working in the universe that does not violate his Sabbath rest. And that has, that's a far leap to go back to the Sabbath and say you're violating something principal in the Sabbath. Right? 
So they okay. so basically when they're when when male and female procreate and you know come together and conception come happens. Together, okay. That is the means God uses to create the body. And the soul. And the soul is Well this is regarding the soul. Okay. That's right. So yes, at conception, through the reproductive process, the soul comes into being. And in a sense, I mean, creationism wouldn't deny that. But what creationism would say is God, God is the one who uh, materialized, or uh, that's not a good one. God is the one who creates the soul. <laughs> There's no other way of saying it, right? A soul is an immaterial thing, right? Just like a spirit, just like a, um, just, you know, a soul is an immaterial aspect of man, I mean. So. He's directly speaking it. He's not using the means of man and woman to create the soul. Correct. Correct. Right. That's right. He is the originator. The originator of it. He, he. Yes, he uses the reproductive process, but when reproduction happens, God is the one that, in a sense, calls the soul into being. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like that because it leaves man um, with the. Creature and creator distinction. Only God creates anything. Okay. Man doesn't create anything. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Calvin pointed to regeneration as an example of look. This, this doesn't, obviously this doesn't, I mean, Luther, I mean, these guys, Calvin, Luther, Edwards, they all believed in monergistic regeneration, which is what? The idea that only God regenerates the soul, that, the, that regeneration, the new birth, being born again. You know, we tell people, ye must be born again, right? Right? Ye must be born again. King James. What we're saying there, however, is that only God causes the new birth that the new birth is not a byproduct of man's faith mm -hmm. okay so this is this is like heavy metal Calvinism right here Be because because um, be because if, if if regeneration is a byproduct of faith that would almost make regeneration the, by the byproduct of works Um, which is inconceivable, right? Um, I mean, since we're talking about, does everybody understand that? Regeneration precedes faith? Mm -hmm. How do we prove it? So that's huge. Look, if regeneration does not precede faith, I can't believe in monergism. Mm -hmm. What is monergism? It's not just a reform website. No. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one party acting. That's right. So mono, mono, one, and then uh, an ergo from Greek, right? Monergism, one person working, right? Ergos is work. So one person active, one person working. Who is that one person? God. That's right. So it's not God and man work together to produce the new work. That's right. That would be synergism. That's right. Synergism. So that can't be what the, that's not what the Bible teaches. But how do we prove that? So we got few, just a couple minutes. You know, I've, we've talked about all this, but this is related because in a similar way that God creates the new birth, he creates the soul in man. 
by himself, exclusively, without any help. He does it. Um, you know, the actual fashioning of a soul, the actual, the actualizing of a soul is not done with the help of man. Just like creation. Nobody helped God in Genesis 1.1. And nobody helps God in John chapter 3 either. Right? Verse 5, when he says, you must be born again. Um, he is not asking Nicodemus to help him. <laughs> right? We know that from verse 8, that it's like the wind. You kind of see the effects, you hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It blows wherever it wants. Right? Yes, yes, ma'am. So he forms our inward parts. That's what Psalm 139 says. So how does right. Edwards and... <laughs> Are you mad at Edwards? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, Edwards, I know. I don't understand how he justifies that rationale uh, against the scripture. Right. That says he forms our yeah. inward parts. And you know what? I didn't check... Um, I didn't check Greg Allison's book, um, Historical Theology. Have you seen that book? It's a big green book. It's like a companion with Wayne Grudem. Mm -hmm. It kind of follows the same chapters. In as much as he covers, um, and there, I'm sure there he would get into the traditionism debate okay. and kind of give some quotes from primary sources mm -hmm. that would probably show you why they argue that way. I should have did that, but I didn't. Ran out of time. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, turn with me to First John, just to just to rehash the argument that we've talked about time and again um, of how we know that regeneration precedes faith. This is a big one, guys. This is a big one. <clears throat> okay, verse, chapter 2, verse 29, we can surmise from this chapter, right? 1 John, chapter 2, verse 29. We know, that, we know what this is not teaching. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, is this saying that by practicing righteousness... You are born of him. What would that lead to? Works-based righteousness. Okay, so we know this is no way. So turn to John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Just a couple chapters over. 1 John 5, 1 uses the exact same Greek word. The exact same Greek word to describe now um, the new birth. So this is also important. Um, he uses this Greek word, genao, and he uses the, um, he uses the perfect passive uh, participle here, which basically means, I'll, I'll share that in a second, but in, listen to what this says. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see that? Is born of God. So... In the same way that we wouldn't say righteousness leads to the new birth, neither does believing that Jesus is the Christ lead to the new birth. What is this saying? It's, 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 it's literally saying that if a person believes that Jesus is the Christ, what that means is that they have already been born of God. Why do you think they believed in the first place? They're not going to believe that Jesus is the Christ dead in their sin. So God has to give them life in order to believe. God has to create life, faith. He has to give the gift of faith in order for people to believe in Jesus Christ. The Greek word here, born of God, 
Um, and my NASB, I don't know about you guys, but in my NASB, I have a footnote, or I think I had a footnote, maybe it was in the other verse, uh, that says, has been born, right? I think, or is it back in 29? Mine just has begotten. Begotten, okay, never mind. Maybe, huh? Mine says, has been What says that? The footnote? The verse says it? The ESV. The ESV, wow, that's good. See, that's monergistic. Wow, that's... Whoever has been, has been born of him. Has been born of him. That's more literal because it's using the perfect... It's using the perfect, perfect participle and it's a passive. Two things here. Perfect points to something in the past time, right? Passive means an agent outside of the object did it. The difference between active and passive, right? So active would be I hit the ball. Passive would be the ball hit me. That's right. I was the passive agent. It's the difference between saying I begot myself versus God begot me. James chapter 1, verse 18, that's exactly what it says. God gave birth to us. That's the literal Greek phrase that's used there. So we're out of time. Any last questions? couple minutes, right? So, all right, I feel like I'm getting back in the swing of things now.